0: Welcome to Can I Speak to Your Product Manager, the nitty-gritty with your favorite PMs. I'm Kyle Kolich, Vice President of Product at
1: Zora. Hi, and I'm Lucas Weber, Director of Product Management at Zora. On today's episode, we have Krishan Gupta, Senior Product Manager at Google. And we're going to start off the show by talking about his recent Never Have I Ever moment, as well as his best tips and insights for being a successful PM in the ever-evolving landscape of product management. Thanks for joining us today, uh, Christian. Um, So, hey, each episode, we like to kick things off with a little game of never have I ever.
0: Never
1: have I ever. Never have I ever. Never have I ever. As a product manager, you probably get pushed to do things outside what you think initially thought possible. So we wanted to bring your experiences on the outside Uh, to the inside of the life of a product manager and get to know you a little better at the same time. So, Christian, tell us a, a little bit about your Never Have I Ever.
2: Sure. And first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. As you mentioned, we do a lot of new things as product managers. One of the things that I was faced with recently is shipping hardware for the first time. I was brought in to Nest within Google to really work on the AI and software side initially. And that role has evolved to also include now shipping hardware. And that happened right at the height of the pandemic. So, you know, shipping hardware in an environment where there's massive supply chain problems, there's travel restrictions, there is uh, chip shortages and lots of competition there, and in an environment where you can't go get in a war room and meet with the people on your team because you're also not getting together. So this was a real learning experience for me, uh, not only on shipping hardware, but also doing it in such a stressful environment really helped me crystallize what it takes to get hardware into customers' hands. And coming out of the software and AI world, really learned a lot of lessons that I think we can take back. So people that are doing software product management, AI product management can really learn a lot of lessons, hopefully, as I did from shipping hardware.
1: Yeah, I don't think that I was thinking that as a software product manager, I'd i ever actually need to do hardware. So I don't even know what that would take. So let's break that down. So talk to us about, you know, how easy was it for you to pick up or maybe what the challenges were for picking up the hardware side of things?
2: Sure. So hardware, as anybody that's done it before knows, is a very different ballgame. For a number of reasons. I think the biggest one is probably that you just need to plan really far in advance. And that's something that I think we can definitely take back to the software side. I think some product managers have gone too far in abusing Agile to mean you don't really need a plan and you're going to figure it out as you go along. And the problem is, especially if you're at a startup, uh, figuring it out eventually might not be good enough because your company might not be around by the time you get there, right? And so you really need to be... Focused on all the research that happens up front and making sure that you're building the right thing 18 months ahead of shipping it. And so with hardware, you don't really have that as an option, right? You have to figure it out and you have to make sure that you're going in the right direction 18 months ahead of when you get there. I think the second thing is just ruthless simplicity, right? Hardware products, especially consumer hardware, uh, are the ones that are really successful, are just very simple. So the nest, Thermostat is maybe our most iconic product here at Nest. And it's got a temperature, it's got a button, and you can turn it, right? And the industrial designers have to work really hard to defend that simplicity against, you know, a thousand features that we want to throw at it. And on the software side also, I think sometimes people feel like they have to fill up the screen. And because you can, you know, have a lot of submenus and navigation and things like that, Sometimes people get a little bit lazy in the design and just stuff everything in there. And that gets exacerbated when there's a lot of pressure from maybe enterprise customers, different executives to all get features in there. And you don't have the physical limitations holding you back to allow you to very easily say, no, we can't do that. And then I think just the last thing is the quality bar. When you have a hardware product, if our hardware products go wrong, uh, for example, a thermostat stops heating your home in the winter, That is a really bad thing for our users. And so we need to make sure that we are super, super focused on quality all the time for hardware. And that's something that I think we could see uh, uh, taken over to the software side as well.
1: But can't you just do more software updates or patch releases to hardware? I mean, how hard can that be?
2: Um, I think one of the things also being at Google is you really learn about scale and So when you've got millions and millions or sometimes billions of customers, the variety that you have to test for is really large. And so what that can mean is months worth of testing before you can ship anything, because if you want to fix a small bug, you don't want to introduce a bigger one. And that's especially challenging when every home is so different and all these users are very different as well. And so you don't have necessarily the luxury of just, you know, shipping an update.
0: If you go back to the, the, I like that part about being simple, especially with, uh, you know, a device, you gotta make it kind of almost so simple that anyone could use it. Like your, you know, your, your eight year old kid could, could use it, maybe not a thermostat, but at least be able to, to, to turn it on, turn it, you know, use it, uh, do what they want with it and move on. But how did you balance the, the, the ease of use, but then what feature you, you would say no to, or what feature you would say yes to and how did you find that balance when you were re, re working on this product?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And for the eight-year-olds, we have a specific feature that helps them not use it oh, good. <laughs> so, yeah. so that nothing gets messed up. But we do want you know, your mom and dad to be able to use it, right? Uh, and you shouldn't have to be tech-savvy in order to get some heat or, or air conditioning. At the same time, there is a lot happening behind the scenes uh, to make that thermostat work, right? The learning part of Nest Learning thermostat is a involves a huge amount of intelligence. Similarly, with our speakers, you know, if you say, "Hey Google, what's the weather?" Sorry for everybody's device that I just triggered there. Um, that sounds like a simple thing, uh, but obviously, there's a lot of natural language processing that is happening, along with a whole other machine learning pipeline that comes back to give a simple answer. So, a key aspect of every product that you make should really be this simplicity. And what I find is really helpful is a North Star metric. So, for example, on a speaker, that might be something like the number of uh, successful queries that you support in a day, right? Where you got the right answer to the right user. For a thermostat, we might be really focused on the amount of carbon that we're saving. And that is actually a, a huge focus for us. Now, that saving can come from using less energy. So helping, for example, when you're not there, using your phone's GPS data, if you've given us permission, to turn off the heat and air conditioning. But at the same time, if you get back in the middle of a blizzard and your house is freezing cold, you're going to turn that feature off, and that's going to prevent our ability to save any energy in the future. So we're always looking at the data to figure out, are we doing the right thing for the planet, really? And that means that we have to balance keeping users happy with saving them energy as well. So creating that Nordstar star metric will really help align your whole team towards which things you want to uh keep right those are like the core user interactions that are really really important, and everything
0: else and you and you use those metrics kind of uh one one to help you know manage that as well, but also give the visibility to the customer and you do you try then do that within the product or you have like apps to kind of showcase. How much energy they've they've saved, or how much carbon they're not emitting, or those kind of things to like, keep that up up in, in at least in line sight of how they're using the system?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So on the device, we need to keep it really simple for the reasons that you mentioned. So we introduced quite a while ago the nest leaf. And what that is is any decision that you make that is helping you save energy and helping the planet be more sustainable, it just gets a leaf. So if you turn the temperature down a little bit in the winter, Uh, You can turn it until you see that green leaf icon, which has become pretty iconic for our users. And you know that you will have made the right choice. Similarly, as you go through the settings, which can be kind of complex for a thermostat, you'll see the leaf on every option that's going to help save you energy. And you can make a decision. Do I want to focus more on comfort in this regard or, or actually save as much as possible? Now, for our more advanced users, we do have an energy dashboard that helps people track how much did they use this month versus last month or this January versus 12 months ago. There's that persona that really wants to dive into all the data, and we have something for them as well. And then finally, uh, we are really focused on the user that is like socially motivated, right? And so you can collect these leaves, you can share on Twitter how many you've gotten, and we do have that cohort of user that really wants to get their neighbors involved and their friends involved in the mission which is obviously really great for everyone. So we try to understand what does each one of those cohorts need. Somebody just changing the temperature just needs a little hint. The data nerd needs a lot of data. And the people that are really socially motivated needs ways to engage their friends in the mission as well.
0: You turn it into a game too. You kind of get, you know, make it exciting for that third cohort to be, oh, I got more leaves than you did. And that's ah, cool. It's Absolutely. Good way of doing it.
1: Let's shift gears a little bit and ask, um, so there was a second part to the, to the challenge. So apart from designing with hardware and, uh, there was also obviously the timing of when you had to do this. All right. So can you tell us a little bit about that? I think you mentioned some of the things, travel restrictions, you know, obviously not being able to meet with, with folks, but, uh, anything else there that, that you've found particularly interesting and, and what did you do to, to overcome those challenges?
2: Yeah, this was one of the things that made it really hard um, was really the uncertainty involved, right? When you have something like a chip shortage, obviously that's painful in the short term. But one of the things that makes it really especially hard is that you don't know how long it's going to last. And so do you want to invest now, for example, in all the hardware changes that would be required to swap out that part with a different one? Or do we think that this chip shortage is going to end in a couple months and that work would have been wasted, right? So we, I had to actually like really keep a pulse on what was happening in geopolitics uh, and and also get everybody comfortable with the idea that we were going to have to make decisions with imperfect information. And I think a good product management lesson is you don't always get that, right? When you're moving really fast in a changing landscape, You have to get everybody comfortable with the fact that you're going to make this decision and waiting for more data is very often not the right thing to do. Like, The pandemic is not the only type of thing that can cause dramatic change, right? Uh, A new competitor can cause a lot of change really quickly, right? Uh, There's a new technology that might come out and cause a lot of change really quickly. I think we're seeing some of that now. And so those lessons... uh, from the pandemic, hopefully everybody can actually carry forward into the future for all kinds of change in the world and how to operate in that environment,
1: yeah, and unlike in you know in software, you think obviously there's dependencies, right, but usually those dependencies are maybe teams next door you can you can talk to them, et cetera, right but then in this particular case, you're actually dependent on hardware, which is actually brought up by somebody else, right was there um a necessity necessarily to change the hardware, or was there a time when you know, you could have just <clears throat> continued with what you had and and just waited out.
2: Those, unfortunately, were not always options. Uh, there was a wide, wide variety of things that happened in hardware. Uh, one of our suppliers had a factory burn down, uh, so that was obviously a very challenging situation where they could no longer provide the supply. And then when it came to chips, um, you know, we don't have a- always a-, a guarantee for an in- indefinite amount of chips for an indefinite amount of period, right? And so often a lot of people wanted these chips, right? Some people had longstanding relationships. So even if you offer to pay more, sometimes you can't get the supply. Um, I think a lot of people are dealing with this with NVIDIA and large language models today, right? But for us, uh, it was a little different, right? And so if a supplier has a number of customers, they're not going to give the parts to the highest bidder necessarily because that would be a very short-term gain for them right if you've got 10 customers and you give all of your supply to the one that pays the most today you're going to lose nine customers that maybe have been with you for 10 years and will be be with you for another 10 years so a lot of it actually came down to the relationships with our partners and suppliers as well uh to leverage you know the relationships that people had at google in an official capacity and also you know in desperate times like you know personal connections helping uh to reach out to people at these different companies, and make the case for why we should, um, you know, be at, given a, a proper allocation of of supply uh, during the during the chip shortage, and we had the same thing with like logistics and and supply chain routes uh, and and things of that nature during the period in the pandemic where everything was coming to a standstill.
0: And yeah, I think part of that when you have that kind of pressure on those things um it's a also kind of an opportunity for innovation right so you know know, these people are working hard hours but they're also probably thinking smarter how do we do this better how do we do this where i maybe can't go in the office much or the factory like you said burned down how do we circumvent that how do you negotiate that so there's there's definitely that innovation you kind of have to be quick on on your feet to to handle that uh which i think goes into our second segment uh innovation therapy and other wild tales (laughs) What are some of the things the top of mind for you as a, as a PM? What 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 do you think is your next you know kind of big thing for uh you know your products?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I mentioned I've spent most of my career working on AI products, and something that I've been really excited about now is how much of a focus there is across all these different product categories around AI and how things are going to be revolutionized through large language models, the you know video processing, generative AI. Uh, There's obviously a lot that's happening. One of the things that I think is really interesting for me particularly as somebody who's been a product manager for my entire career is how that changes the job of the product manager. Uh, I think there's a lot of important differences that people should understand if they are going to be an AI product manager for the first time. That goes to how product requirements are defined is very different. Uh, The UX challenges are very different. And what it means to help a team through execution and, and speed of delivery is also wildly
0: different in an
2: AI context.
0: Yeah, I think we're seeing that too. And it is kind of, uh, you know, it was the thing you can't get any VC funding unless you throw AI in there. So I think they're, sometimes they're making rash or rush decisions on when to use it or, or why to use it. But I think you're right. It is a different mindset when you, when you bring in kind of the AI. And as a product manager, you know, the requirements are different. How how they interact with the AI, how it actually will develop, you know, what is the user experience for? Or how do they update, uh, the you know the language model to, to, to make it more robust, or do we pull in different data sources, or when do we not pull in certain data sources? So that, that starts to kind of create that new kind of architect in your mind of how do you implement this into your product, or how do you implement it to a core product that you've had for years? Where does it fit nicely in? I think that's a that's a challenge that we have. Is what We want to use a lot of this technology, but where does it actually make sense for the customer and not just do it because it sounds flashy and good? What's your relationship with that?
2: With any new technology, there's people that just want to be in it for the buzzwords. But I am really a believer, and I do think a lot of product managers are going to need to figure out how to work with AI in the future because it's going to become table stakes pretty soon, whereas now it's a buzzword. And so for it, just as one small example, the PRD, it's like the most iconic deliverable from a product manager. For a product that's really just about workflow, uh, you know you can specify what all the screens are supposed to be. The engineers can build it, you test it, and you ship it, right? And with AI, that's very different, right? Because let's say you want to uh, predict who's stealing. That's a challenge that I had uh, in a previous role. Who is stealing energy now the requirements could just be, I'm gonna give you all the data. You tell me as the engineering team, like which customers are stealing and which ones aren't, right? That's a very simple PRD. And it's not very helpful either, right? What you really wanna be doing in that requirements document is understanding the optimization metrics that you're shooting for. So for example, how bad is it to say somebody's stealing when they're not? And how bad is it to do the opposite of, you know, say somebody's not stealing when they are? And you don't have an exact uh, answer to that question. And that's why it's really important for the product manager to jump in, talk to the customer, understand how they are thinking about it, and give the team that optimization metric. What's the cost of a false positive or a false negative? So that that can be used in the AI training process to find the right optimizations, right? Another area is bias. So, for example, uh, zip code. Uh, is a piece of data that would actually strengthen, in quotes, our predictive accuracy when it comes to theft. However, it's also a proxy for race. And we really, you know, for moral, ethical, legal reasons, do not want to be factoring in race to a decision around uh, who we think is is stealing and, and who is not. And so helping the team understand the bias uh, and and how that factors into the AI training process is another important job of the product manager. Ethics is a third. So for example, you know, we were asked if we could help understand which houses were growing marijuana in Texas. We have to think about, is that something that we really want to do? Is that aligned with our mission? Right. Uh, And then finally explainability. So in going back to that theft use case, We had to understand all the different users that would be involved in that journey. And one of them is a judge that's going to give a subpoena. And so we need to make sure that our product has the artifacts that go along with the decision, right? Because if you're using a black box neural network to say somebody's stealing and somebody's not, it's most likely not going to hold up in court when you want to actually go out and investigate. And so you have to make it so that your AI is using the right products, um, using the right models, excuse me, uh, for explainability. And also that you've got the user experience built in so that when somebody does want to launch an investigation, for example, they've got all the artifacts that they're going to need for the entire end-to-end process of going through the police and and the judicial system
0: to carry that from end-to-end. I I think you're right. It it definitely stretches a little more for what PM think through because i mean the, the bias the data the ethics the usability you know all those have to be factored in and that can be that can be tough for a lot of pms out there right who, who maybe are used to you're right, the old model was just you know database data model ui process this is where the user goes through I'm kind of done but now i have this new powerful tool that can do a lot of things but if i don't understand its full capability i can create a very bad bias for customer segment and create a noise that I probably don't want uh, from my product. So it's it's definitely something uh, uh, top of mind that they have to think through as you as you incorporate this into your products.
1: If you could maybe going back to those two items that you mentioned about uh, UX and execution, um, if you could maybe just highlight some things that uh, maybe you'd want to think about, or for those of us who are uh, going into it, what, what should we be watching out for?
2: yeah i think the biggest thing from a ux perspective that i've noticed is that trust becomes the the like absolutely paramount with an ai system right so if your user has to trust the output of your ai model you need to be thinking about that user in that context right so for example uh, in my tesla right if i put it on autopilot There's a lot of UX that goes around it where on the screen, I see everything that the computer sees, right? I I see that all the cars are detected uh, by the autopilot system. I see that it understands the lane because it puts, you know, two blue lines there. And all of those things make me feel a lot better that, okay, I can see that it understands where everything is and where I'm supposed to go. And therefore, I feel a lot better about it, right? So I think they did a great job of helping to endear trust. Um, And An example that I had personally, uh, I was working on a system that was going to recommend sales content to a salesperson. And we tried everything to get the salesperson to understand that this is the right piece of content for that user. And pretty much nothing worked, right? We had, okay, you know, percent efficacy, close rate when this content is used, um, you know, this is... uh, you know, often used in this industry. And the thing that finally worked was we just took one deal. We pulled it from Salesforce. And we would say something like, Lucas used this piece of content to close an $80,000 deal with Coca-Cola. And just an anecdote, that's all it was. Trust was really high, right? Because somebody would look at that and they'd be like, oh, I know Lucas. I know that Coca-Cola deal, right? They were like ringing the bell. Uh, about that last week, right, if it was recent. Uh, So you try and pick a big deal that was recent, right, because people know about it. And just that little bit, like, created so much interest that somebody wanted to click on it, right? So all the things that we were doing around stats had absolutely no impact (laughs) on these sales users. Um, But just that one carefully picked anecdote uh, made all the difference, right? And so, again, that's that user experience that goes along um, with the recommendations uh, that were coming out of the AI algorithm in this case, uh, making all the difference. Other, other times, you know, just understanding, like, how do we expand the amount of uh, ground truth that we have? So, for example, we had a model that would predict when uh, equipment would fail. And so what we ended up doing is we only had a couple thousand examples of it. And so we didn't, we weren't able to get the accuracy that we wanted out of that. And so what we ended up doing is convincing the company to take our next top couple thousand uh, predictions and actually go investigate them one by one. And so they had it took a lot of convincing, but we had them deploy a a pretty large team to go investigate all these uh, different predicted failures to then give us the ground truth. So we were able to double the amount of ground truth data that we had, which dramatically improved the accuracy of our models. So those types of things where you can help the team get more data and understand the ground truth, especially ground truth data, if you can help your team get that as a product manager, you'll really be a hero to the engineering and data science teams because that's really what they're they're craving and that's what's going to help them go faster.
1: Yeah, that's really great insight. It's amazing because absolutely in traditional software and and you know, defeating bugs, right? It's it's really elbow grease. It's just you you throw capacity at it hours, right? And that's kind of the metric. The more folks you have work on, working on it, it's a pretty linear curve that you know this, this stuff will get we get solved. But with AI, that's, that's not true. They're optimizing around a very different metric. As you mentioned, and of course, it's all about the data, right? The more training data you have. So now you're finding that those are actually the things you need to work through, the capacity for having, you know, how much data do you have? Those are the things you're optimizing. So speaking of uh, bug fixes and and just slamming things down, right? Vis-a-vis trade-offs to how much time do you spend doing fun, innovative work uh, versus others? Um, Maybe this is a great time to transition to our third segment, which is kind of all about the PM power moves. Powering up, power PM work is all about prioritization. And we know that, you know, we want to be doing all the cool stuff with innovation like AI, right, et cetera. Uh, but we just talked about, okay, well, there's buck fixing, right? So, you know, how do you, is there any sort of insights maybe that where you were able to uh, bring to bear some, some serious PM wisdom to, to figure out how to best prioritize that and, and find some balance there?
2: Yeah, as somebody that's been doing product management for a long time, I'm very familiar with this problem. I'm sure a lot of your listeners are too, which is, you know, you've always got that backlog of hundreds of bugs, right, that you could go chase after. Uh, One thing that we also have is usually a lot of engineering folks are screaming about technical debt, right? And they want to re-architect things or just go back and refactor some of the stuff that they had to ship in a rush. I think when you get to the root of those problems, you have to look at where they come from. I think one of the roots is misaligned incentives, right? So PMs and some folks want to work on the big feature stuff, right? Uh, Some of the engineers might be graded on their quality of their code, right? Or, you know, they want to put something on their resume about how they use a large language model or whatever the cool thing is at the time, right? So there's misaligned incentives. There's also asymmetric information. So... Uh, if you're working in B two B, for example, your customer success team has a much better sense of what's happening at all your customers than the product or engineering teams do. Uh, there's recency bias. Typically, if you're in a triage meeting, the bug that you're looking at seems really bad, but the one you know that's sitting in a backlog in a database somewhere doesn't seem that bad, right? And there's also this idea of kind of a queuing problem, right? Uh, where okay, maybe you've got three front end engineers available right now, but no back-end engineers, so you know your, your whole sprint is, is stalled. So we've got all these systemic problems going on within a lot of different product organizations. And one of the things that I found that really was able to address a lot of those things at the same time was a system we implemented at a two-, three-hundred-person SaaS company a few years ago. And this was a particular version of Kanban that I found worked really well. And the way it would work is we had epics. Right, collections of user stories, and we would categorize them into uh, one of three things. They were either about features, technical debt, or quality. And the ones that were about technical debt were actually created and managed by the engineering team. We tried to keep them all about the same size so that they were comparable, but a collection of technical debt user stories would get put together, typically around this you know, database optimization. Here's five things that we could do to make it better. Uh, the customer success team was actually responsible for the quality one. So if they knew that customer X had a huge deployment coming up next week, and, and this bug was like a pet peeve of theirs, you know, they could—they ha- actually were empowered to put that into a, an epic and actually prioritize it towards the top of the quality backlog, let's say. And so we had these three backlogs. Engineering uh, created the tech debt backlog. Customer success created the quality backlog, and the product management team created the feature backlog. And, you know, us, we kind of got involved in everything a little bit. Um, and what we would do is we would actually say, okay, we have capacity across the team for, let's say, 10 teams. And each of those teams should have front-end, back-end, testing, UX, so that a team can ship an epic. And so that really helped with some of those queuing problems where the front end people are available, but the back end people aren't, right? Because each team had a little bit of everyone. Um, We helped with the asymmetric information problem because engineering and CS were prioritizing their own backlogs. And the way we would align incentives was we would agree as a company in the executive meeting that... Right now we really needed to be focused, let's say, on innovation. So we were gonna take six feature epics, uh two about quality and two about technical debt. And that was right for the company at that time, let's say. Maybe we you know we we had to like make a big push to hit our numbers for the end of the year, and a lot of deals were dependent on these new features, right? Um, at other times, you know, if, if we felt like quality or technical debt was getting out of hand, we could totally flip it. Right. So we had alignment at a high level about the percentage of our company that we wanted to dedicate to each of those three areas at a given time. And so, you know, at a, at any given time, we would have, let's say, 10 epics that were in flight across 10 teams, and the mix was controlled by the executive team so that we had everybody knew uh, the priority of the organization and the incentives were basically forced to be aligned because – uh because of this structure. so I found that worked really well. Uh, I think it was a, a power move um, that uh, I was able to kind of stumble into because we had a really good engineering VP at the time that came up with this whole system. But whenever I meet people that are struggling with these problems, I try to share uh, that organization structure because it's just the best that I've ever seen.
1: Well thank you for sharing that uh, power move. There's lots to unpack there. i'm I'm still kind of reeling through all the implications. But very, very cool uh, insight and and a way to to organize things. Awesome. Well, why don't we switch to our last segment, which I think is kind of super fun. Uh, That's our ship it or skip it.
0: What do you want to do? Let's do it. No. No. Maybe. Yes.
1: So again, we're going to ask you in a rapid fire uh, fashion, a couple of different things that we want you to sort of react to. And just give us a, would you actually build it and ship it? Or would you not interested and skip it? All right, so we're going to go through a couple. So I'm going to start off with with the first one, and this one's going to be near and dear to your heart. AI, ship it or skip
2: it? AI, you got (laughs) to ship. I think, you know, it gets misused. I think we've been shipping AI for quite some time. The definitions of it tend to change. Often, whatever you can't do yet is considered AI, right? And then as
0: soon as you're able to do it, um, oh, you know, Facebook can recognize faces. That's and what about the boring company's tunnel, the LVCC loop? Will you ship it or skip it? Anything Elon Musk is doing, I'm shipping.
1: <laughs> I don't want to bet against that. Uh, there you I go. see you. an Elon fan. All right.
2: But infrastructure in general, I think is doesn't and as, as somebody who's working on hardware now, I, I've gained a new appreciation for the real world, I think.
1: Um, well, speaking of, uh, what about hardware? Uh, would you do that again?
2: Hardware is, is amazing. Yeah, I think um, I, I'm hooked on hardware. Uh, <laughs> nice. We, um, okay. it, you know, it's, re, it's really the amount of things that we can do behind a screen, I think, is, is, does have a limit, right? And at some point, people want things in the real world um or even just to access the virtual world right apple shipping uh the vision pro shipping a 3000 some dollars yeah. Uh, yeah apple vision that's pro the latest right? and and yeah. it's hardware that's supposed to get you connected to this virtual world and i imagine that hardware is only going to get better over time so um uh,
0: at the risk of failing to prioritize i'm going to ship it
1: <laughs> Nice. very good
0: <laughs> well i i got one maybe maybe this will maybe this will get the cut but Discovered a new recipe for Coca-Cola. Will you, will you put out a new Coke? New Coke. I don't, yeah, I don't think the track record is there. So, th- might have found
2: one that I'll, I'll, I'll skip. Um, I'll throw that one out. Uh, yeah, like give me a hard kombucha, something like that.
1: Uh, anything else top of mind uh, for you, Christian, That that you're thinking of shipping or or skipping?
2: <laughs> uh, let's skip everything else and just skip everything else. All get to you know we'll, we'll we'll keep our our hardware AI and hard cammbo <laughs> and uh, thats
1: pretty pretty good oh, and,
2: and a trip to Vegas yes right. there you go
1: definitely there well that was awesome uh, honestly really appreciate you stopping by um, and sharing uh, all your experiences and insights uh, with us Krishan. we definitely look forward to uh, keeping up with you and seeing what other hardware and what other AI things you're you're gonna be building and again thanks so much for your time a real pleasure to talk with you
2: yeah, thank you guys for having me here. It was fun.
1: All right, so that was uh, Krishan Gupta. Um, Kyle, what were your kind of takeaways from uh, from everything that Krishan shared with us?
0: Yeah, I would just say that I, I, that was a great conversation. I got a lot of good takeaways. Um, I, I like it's probably top of mind for me is about metrics, uh, and that North Star metric is, is an important one, especially from from when we look at products as well. Uh, and being able to tie it to the right persona and then be able to you know, give it incentives to those personas to either and it ended up creating even a better experience for that for that user, right? If they're, you know, a, a user that's want to see if they're getting more leaves and, and show that, you know, they're environmentally conscious, you can kind of drive that up, but it also saves the environment. So it's kind of a, a good, good two punch, one, two punch there. Um, I like the, uh, you know, the distinction of as a PM and bringing in artificial intelligence and AI, you have to think differently. Um, it's not you know you can't re- kind of rely on the old ways you have to kind of think about the data data is very important um, that precision curve is is kind of vital to the way you think of products and then again the the complexity of hardware I mean and you know we don't do too much hardware in, in, in our, our software so to hear more about like how many you're dependent on many other external ser- uh, services uh, and being able to coordinate with those and and think of that as you, you know, build out your product uh, is, is vital in the hardware space which was great
1: yeah, yeah, look, yeah. Look, I look. think those are, yeah, those are great items that you've picked out. Uh, you know, apart from the excitement of of AI, uh, I think the the key thing that landed with me is actually the Kanban uh, board uh, approach that uh, Christian mentioned. I think it's a great way to keep um, it up leveled so that you're not into the nitty gritty of all the uh, user stories and different bugs, right? But instead, you kind of up level it to bigger chunks that Really, across the org, everybody can kind of understand uh, what those are, what uh, value that's driving, and everybody's got input and alignment and visibility to do what's going on. And of course, some way of Uh, then prioritizing that together and making a decision as to what's important for the company at any particular time and adjusting that as as appropriate, right? With everybody kind of understanding why those trade-offs are made. Because again, it's always going to be a compromise. Not everybody's going to get what they want, but having that visibility, understanding the reasons for why you're doing that and having the ability to then circle back and change that mix when uh you know situations change i think it's it's amazing to get everybody really happy with what's what's going on or at least reasonably satisfied how things are going so that was my uh, major takeaway
0: and I, I so from i hear though you want the CSMs to take over your roadmap is that what is that the plan
1: In any case, it was great to have Krishan Gupta on with us on our podcast. Uh, We hope to catch up with him again uh, in, in the future. In the meantime, be sure to hit that subscribe button and tune in for our next episode. Thanks so much for joining us.